0: So I wanna start with a story. Uh, It's one that um, I really um, love and have shared many times probably. So if you've heard it before, uh, bear with it. And and what what might be useful for you in the story today. This is a story of two monks uh, from someplace long ago, far away, wherever you want to place that is just fine. They belonged to an order uh, that had very, very strict rules, and one of the rules were there was to be no contact with women, male monks, zero contact, zero talking, conversing, looking at anything with women. So these two monks were traveling from one monastery to another. And in their travel, they traveled through a small town after an enormous rain. And the streets were really muddy. Uh, As they were traveling through the town, they saw a young, beautiful woman standing on one side of the street in clear distress, needing to get to the other side of the street Um, but she was dressed in very fine uh, silken robes that would be destroyed by walking through the mud to get to the other side of the street. So the older monk saw her, walked right up to her and said, may I help you? I'd be glad to carry you across the street. And the woman with tremendous relief and gratitude said, yes, thank you. So the monk lifted her in his arms, carried her across the street, set her down, went back to the younger monk and started walking, um, continuing their journey. The younger monk watched all of that happen in a sort of stunned horror. Here was his elder brother, totally breaking the rules In a way that just stunned the younger monk. So as they headed out of town, the younger monk's mind was just reeling with this. Oh my gosh, what does this mean? Does this mean he breaks all sorts of rules? Does this mean I'm with somebody? You know, just on and on and on and on. I've always had such respect for him. Is that respect valid? Is it not? I, you know, it just was getting bigger and bigger and bigger until several miles outside of the city. The younger monk finally just kind of exploded it out and said to to his elder brother, what were you thinking about carrying that woman? The elder monk looked at the younger and said, brother, I set her down in the town several miles back. It's you who have been carrying her all of this time. love that story because it's such a clear illustration of what our minds can do when we get hold of one thing and then let it bloom or proliferate or explode into this this entire, um, this entire thought storm that then actually takes on a life of its own and becomes hard to get out of. Uh, rumination. <laughs> Anyone know anything about that one? There's actually a great word, I love this word in Buddhist psychology, for that act, and it's called papancha. And they the word, <laughs> like a really good um, sound description for that proliferative mind state that we can get in. Um, papancha so the younger monk obviously caught in that state of papancha with this onslaught of dialogue from the not peaceful mind from the reactive mind and the other monk is the sweet relief waiting for us when we learn to set it down whatever it is that we need to set down so I want to talk a little more um, about Papancha and that, and one way to help setting it down. And this is, this is really built on what we, we looked at last week with the breaking down into the parts. One of the first things I want to say, though, about Papancha is sometimes we know we are caught. I mean, we just, we, we're caught in a worry storm, a fear storm, an anxiety storm, whatever it is. Um, it is very, very clear. My mind is in a rut that I cannot break loose of. What's interesting when you start to pay attention uh, is that often our minds can be doing some sort of low grade papancha in the background all the time. So being able to recognize when there's some sort of clinging of thought, you know, it just like some, some trigger happens and, and there's something in us that doesn't let go of it. And it just kind of um, churns throughout the day. So, One way to understand what happens with that, where that comes from, is is that breaking down into the parts that we talked about last week. Um, And I really wanna hone that conversation to one particular part of that. So as a reminder, there is this initial contact, the mind contacts something, Uh, it could be a sound, it could be the temperature of the room, It could be um, a fault, a memory. Doesn't really matter what it is, but there's some initial contact. And out of that initial contact, there is, and I'm simplifying this a little bit, but um, I don't think too much. There is an unconscious immediate assessment of that contact. Was it good? Was it bad? Like it? Don't like it? Uh, pleasant, unpleasant, um, or maybe I can't quite make sense of it, or I can make sense of it, and it's not really pleasant, it's not really unpleasant. There's this chunking, uh, unconscious chunking of it into one of those basic, um, three basic categories. From a neuroscience perspective, It's really interesting to understand what we now know about that chunking that goes on. It's in the the emotional part of the brain, the survival part of the brain, um, and is is, um, often driven by the amygdala, the survival center of the brain, with this basic question, safe, not safe, safe, not safe. What's really interesting is that there's a Buddhist psychology understanding of that chunking that the Buddha came up with 2,500 years ago just from observing his mind without the use of MRIs that we now have. He was able to notice, hear a sound, there's a part of the mind that goes like that sound, want more of it. That was me, my example last week of the bell. I was doing walking meditation and uh, had my phone on the insight timer and forgot that there was a a three minute bell that would come up. And all of a sudden there's this beautiful bell (laughs) just comes through and on my walking meditation and I hear sound, my mind goes pleasant. And my next immediate knee jerk reaction was, and I want more. I need to mess with my phone. I need to set it up to to make the phone phone ring every three minutes. But being able to notice, oh, no, wait a minute. Look at that. That was just sound. That was pleasant. There's this possibility of cutting through the reactivity when we can see that. Ah, pleasant. Enjoy the sound. Allow it to rise. Allow it to fall away and move on into the next moment without needing to cling on to it. Without needing to proliferate it, um, without needing to make this whole story of, oh, I should do all of my walking meditations with Insight Timer, and I should have it so that they ring every three minutes. And if I have it ring in every three minutes, which is the better sound? Oh, no, that's, that bell reminds me of fire trucks. And fire trucks, you know, I mean, blah, 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 blah. can you see how the papancha from just a bell? I can go into this whole this whole thing if I don't catch it um, um, and reel it back. So these three, you know, in Buddhist psychology, there's a name for this. It's called um, um, Vedana, uh, which is often translated as feeling tone. Uh, doesn't mean the emotional tone of it. It means these three distinct categories, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That third one, that's a mouthful to say, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So a lot of people shorten that to neutral. It's not neutral. That's a mistranslation. When I first started practicing with these feeling tones, that's all I ever heard, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. My mind early in my practice would say, oh wow, this is neutral, and this is neutral, and this is neutral. And it took me a a good bit of looking to understand what I was categorizing as neutral was actually um, suppressed aversion, suppressed unpleasant. Like I don't really, I'm gonna pretend everything's pleasant, but it's not really pleasant, Um, but I'm not gonna admit unpleasant, so I'm gonna call it neutral. So neutral, uh, there might be a true category of neutral, but that's, that's more tricky um, to use that translation. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant captures a much bigger range. An uh, example I like to use of, of kind of understanding where they are different. When my mother died, my mother died with this tremendous peace and grace and beauty that was healing to be in that presence of that way of walking through the journey of dying. Was it pleasant? No, I was losing my mother. <laughs> was it unpleasant? No, it was sacred space. It was, it was um, a, a remarkable gift to be there, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It just was what it was and didn't fit in in those categories. So kind of understanding those three categories and what our mind, um, how our mind relates to them is really helpful. If we can catch what spot our mind has put it into, then we have a way of choosing how we're going to respond to it as opposed to the unconscious sending us into the knee-jerk reactivity. We can't choose which category we, um, our mind is gonna put something in. That happens below conscious control. Um, that was kind of that example of me thinking things were neutral when actually it was unpleasant that I was trying to put into a category a pleasant. I can't, I can't choose which category I can bring conscious attention and begin to understand this whole world of response possibility as opposed to the narrow knee-jerk reactivity um, without consciousness. So the monk, to bring it back, the monk in that opening story really caught up in this righteous rush of indignation in the beginning of it. That's an important piece to name when we don't catch it and it proliferates into this big thing, can actually get this addictive quality to it. Um, um, Like think about some time that you felt wronged and you find yourself running the story over and over and over and like, you know, like how, how you might have handled it, handled it, uh, like the knight in shining armor that rushed in and, and turned it all right. Um, and, and if, if we don't um, respond to what's happening in our mind, That sort of proliferation can take on a life on its own and start becoming consuming, you know, revenge fantasies um, that go on and on and on and on. They can get hard. Then there's this quality that they can get hard to come out of because the thing itself has taken on this, this sort of life of its own. But if we can take any kind of papancha, like like say the monk in the story, and reel it back to the initial scent contact, then we have this possibility of understanding the moment totally differently. So in this story, clearly the addictive drive of the papancha was unpleasant. So what was behind the unpleasant for the younger monk seeing the older monk do it? Was, that, was it that he actually had an inborn fear, I don't know, not inborn, but a, a learned fear of women? Like, like there was something in him that, that legitimately um, tensed and stressed and worried about contact with women. Um, was it that he had um, this um, drive to be accepted in his monastery community? Um, by being the perfect rule follower, you know, following the perfection of the rules at the utmost and here he was out with one of the senior monks who, who broke the rules. What does that, so does that mean he broke the rule and would he be accepted if the, young, if the older monk got kicked out? for? I mean, can you, can you kind of see that there are lots of possibilities of what that initial contact seeing the older monk help the woman, that that was unpleasant And the root of that is relevant. If he could have contacted unpleasant and just stayed with, this isn't pleasant. What's going on here for me? What's my tender, vulnerable hurt spot underneath making this pleasant? If we can identify the tender, vulnerable hurt spot underneath the unpleasant, that's when we have the possibility of opening to healing, of bringing something different um, for being in that mode, in that place. And that's, that's the other way that the neuroscience model for me is just so helpful, to understand that Papancha really is an unconscious attempt to deal with some sort of pain at some level or another. It's an unconscious attempt to deal with unpleasant that I can't get away from, or pleasant that I don't know how to manage without wanting more and getting addicted to wanting more. So this breaking it down into those parts, wherever we catch it, and to try to come back to the initial trigger Sense contact and this categorizing, that's where we can begin to shine a light in a way that's really helpful. So, for me, when I can shine that light in that space, you know, I find myself asking questions like, What am I trying to avoid? What, what am I trying to protect? What am I needing to cling on to? What is the safety issue? that's making me want to cling on to something. That's not easy to do. We long for the pleasant. We long to run to the pleasant. We long to escape the unpleasant. So coming and staying right there, that goes right against our survival instinct. It goes against what the amygdalas thinks its job um, is for us to do. And here's where it gets really interesting. Our full, beautiful selves are more than our survival instinct. There's more to us than than that shut down place and opening up to this life that maybe eventually is just beyond pleasant and unpleasant. That's where we open up to a new life of meaning and richness where we're not trying to run to the pleasant and run away from the unpleasant. So I love the example of that second monk um, um, in this story who could carry the lady without any harm. Um, He could have this just simple act of goodwill to another human being and do it with a freedom that transcended any need for a rule. That's what we begin to, that kind of freedom, we begin to open up when we can shine a light onto where our hurt is leading us to knee-jerk reactivity and where being with our hurt can open up a healing possibility instead. So I want to finish with a quote from Rumi that um, is often shared and I think speaks to this beautifully. He says, don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. So let's just pause for a moment. So if you were to explore this moment, right now, with whatever's here. Open up a question, not thinking about, but just opening with curiosity a question. Is my mind assessing this pleasant? Unpleasant? Or maybe it's not really either. With whatever you're finding around that assessment, can you feel into what the normal habit energy would want to do with that assessment? If it's unpleasant? What's the habit energy try to typically do with that? If it's pleasant, what's the habit energy try to do with that? What's it like to simply acknowledge, ah, pleasant, ah, unpleasant, breathe in, breathe out, without adding to the moment, without proliferating, any direction, just simple acknowledgement this moment of life, just as it is. Thank you.